until the earth is filled with your glory. That's what we look forward to when there will be no more sin in this world, no more death. Uh, there will be absolutely nothing that detracts from the glory of the Lord. That's our great ambition and that is our desire. You know, one of the ways that we can know uh, that we've been converted is that we do truly desire God to be glorified. Uh, the, it is natural within human beings to seek self, to satisfy self, and uh, some may find satisfaction for self through religion. Uh, we know that because all over the world there are religious people who find fulfillment and satisfaction through participation in a religious community or through adherence to uh, a set of religious uh, dogmas or tasks. But what we recognize about the believer is that there is a genuine, deep, profound desire to see God glorified. That really is the heartbeat of the Christian life. And so that's why we're here this morning. I pray is to glorify God, to make much of Him, uh, not just to get a boost, uh, not just to see what we can gather for ourselves, but to magnify the Lord in our own hearts and in the lives of other people as God would use us this morning to minister to one another. By the way, uh, let me just say this, it's not just those who come up here on the stage to lead service who are ministering to one another, but we're all here gathered as a body this morning. So even as we sing out praises to God next to our neighbor, or after the service as we dialogue with God's people, we are ministering to one another. So uh, don't think of it in terms of coming here and then there's something that happens up here in the front and then everyone just chit-chats their way to the car and leaves. But, but we're ministering to one another today for the glory of the Lord. So if you would, as we come to our instruction now from God's Word, go to Exodus 20. We are in Exodus 20 and specifically verse 16. As we are working our way through Exodus, we are now in the Ten Commandments. And as I've said many times, it's great to see how the Ten Commandments emerge out of uh, the story of Exodus, and it, it will be nice to see how the Ten Commandments, we, we leave them and then go into the outworking of that uh, after in the, in the subsequent chapters. So we're seeing the Ten Commandments very much situated in its context. And I appreciate Mark earlier bringing us back to Mount Sinai, the setting for these commandments. And our focus today will be on the ninth commandment. So we've looked at the first eight. We're, we're taking one each week, and today we are on the ninth commandment. As we've been going through the commandments, one of the things that you've probably noticed is how they are all linked together. Uh, maybe you've, I've, I've tried to identify situations where that's the case, but uh, probably in your own mind, you've noticed the ways in which the commandments connect. Ways in which they, they fold into one another. Last week, for example, we looked at stealing the Eighth Commandment. Uh, and what, what we find there is that this commandment is very much connected to the two that come right before it. So both murder and adultery, rightly understood, are forms of stealing. When we murder, we steal. When we commit adultery, we 
steal. If we murder, we take away or steal a person's life. If we commit adultery, we steal a spouse or we steal or even kill a marriage. We, we take from another that, that marriage bond, that marriage unity that exists, and we take that for our So rightly understood, both murder and adultery are stealing. And as I talked about last week, we see the relationship between stealing and coveting. So the two commandments before it and then the tenth commandment. Stealing presupposes coveting and coveting is stealing in the heart. Uh, Just as being angry with our neighbor or hating our neighbor, remaining even unreconciled to our neighbor is a form of murder in the heart, and just as looking lustfully or looking at a woman to lust upon her or a man to lust upon that person uh, is committing adultery in our hearts, so too is coveting committing stealing in our hearts. So we see the connection. And of course, all of the commandments involving love of neighbor, the latter six commandments, ultimately have to do with loving God. Why is it that we do not murder? Why do we not commit adultery? Why do we not steal? And so forth. It is because we love God. Remember David's sin with Bathsheba. It's a ghastly moment in the history of Israel. And that much more ghastly considering who does it. David, a man after God's own heart. A man whom God took from shepherding in the field The sheep who was basically not even considered worthy to be brought forward when uh, Samuel came to Jesse, David's father, and said, bring your sons forward. One of them is to be the anointed king. And David is simply left in the field. He's not even thought by his father to be an option. The Lord takes David and he raises him up and he protects him from Saul. He has him defeat Goliath. He's with him in all of these incredible ways. And David himself being the type of Christ. Jesus being called the son of David. And we see this awful sin committed by David with Bathsheba. He sleeps with another man's wife. Adultery, coveting, stealing. Then he tries to cover it up. Lying. And finally, he has the husband... Of Bathsheba killed. He has him sent to the the hottest part of the battle on the front line so that he won't make it. Essentially murdering Uriah the Hittite. So we see all of these sins against neighbor. You read that story of David and you think, okay, well, he sinned against Bathsheba in this way. He sinned against Uriah in this way. He sinned against the the army and his commander in these other ways, making them complicit in his own sin. So we see all of the horizontal dynamics of David's sin. But what does David pray to God in Psalm 51 when he recognizes the weight of his own sin, when he confesses his sin to God, when he's intellectually, emotionally, psychologically, in his own will, volitionally, dealing with the weight, the tragedy of his sin, what does he say? He says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, 
You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So we see how the commandments are all linked together in all these specific ways with the neighbor, love of neighbor. But we also see how ultimately all of these neighbor commands, these love of neighbor commands, are ultimately commands to love God. As we come to each commandment, what we are really talking about is worship. That is what is in view. Obeying God's commands from the heart, in the power of the Holy Spirit, working out from and in light of the sin-bearing sacrifice of Christ on the cross. This is what it means to worship the Lord. We worship the Lord by obeying his law, by delighting in his law, by meditating on his law day and night. By the Spirit of God, we are empowered to love God and love neighbor for God's glory. And that's the worship. And as we started this morning with God's glory, we we love God. We, We do not put other gods in his place. We do not exchange God for other gods. We do not supplement God with other gods. We do not take his name in vain. And we do not sin against our neighbor in all the ways we've talked about, ultimately because we want God to be glorified. This is the whole of the Christian life. This is worship. So going through the Ten Commandments helps us understand the contours of of the Christian life? What is the work of the Spirit in our lives? How is the Spirit conforming us to the image of Christ? And what we will find in our lives is that the Spirit is conforming us more and more into what we find in these commandments. Another way to say this is that the Ten Commandments give us a portrait of Christ. We are told that Christ was entirely without sin. He was perfect. But what that means is that Christ perfectly obeyed God's law. What that means is that Christ perfectly obeyed the Ten Commandments. What that means is that Christ perfectly loved his Father and loved his neighbor as himself. The Ten Commandments give us a portrait of Christ. If we want to know what Christ looked like, how Christ acted, how Christ thought. And what we find as Christians is that we are being conformed day by day to that portrait. And so I hope in in saying those things that we'll consider how important it is for us to understand the Ten Commandments, for us to feel the weight of the Ten Commandments and understand that this is God's will for us in our daily lives. Let me say this final thing by way of introduction Going through the commandments also helps us not to cheapen worship. You know, we use that word worship very lightly. Sometimes we identify it exclusively with certain aspects of church life or personal piety or outward expression. The most typical of these, is, of course, is uh, worship music. And we do understand that singing God's praises is one of the main ways we find worship in Scripture. But worship is not to be equated with singing in a context. Worship is not to be equated or exhausted, rather, in the notion of singing or the act of singing. 
There is an incredible depth to our worship. And what it involves is conforming our lives by the Spirit to this portrait of Christ. And so my hope in going through the Ten Commandments is that we will not cheapen worship or reduce worship, but that we'll understand the depth of worship, the grandeur of worship in how we carry out our lives. The way we worship God is by living unto him. It's not an isolated act. All of life is worship of the Lord. So the title for the sermon this morning is The Ninth Commandment, No False Testimony. So if you would stand with me, we're going to read God's word together. And as we've been doing, we're going to read all of verses 1 to 17 in chapter 20. But our focus today will just be on verse 16. This is the word of the Lord. The word, by the way, which God has written on our hearts. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. By the way, let me just say this. When Nathan the prophet confronted uh, David, when, when the Lord confronted David, he reminded David of all that he had done for him first. He reminded David of all of his loving kindness and his selection of him and his grace toward him. And that is precisely what we find here at the head of the Ten Commandments. So verse 2, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, or the word there is idol, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, And all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray and ask that the Holy Spirit would illuminate his word as it is preached, that the Lord would help me to preach clearly and to teach his word clearly, and that he would help all of us to listen. Uh, It's amazing Uh, How many times I'm convicted in my own sermons uh, just uh, as I'm going through it. It's it's amazing. 
uh, how I'm being preached to by myself as I'm up here preaching. I mean, this is God's word, and we're all under it. We're all sitting under it, regardless of who is preaching. So let's pray that the Lord would work in our hearts. He would convict us and purge us of sin, that he would uh, restore our hearts and comfort us, encourage us in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace towards us and saving us. Thank you for choosing us before the foundation of the world in your predestining love and your sovereign grace. God, we praise you that for those of us who are believers, you, apart from any merit of our own, apart from any foreseen virtue, either within or without, you worked in us to call us to yourself to bow the knee to Christ, to bow the knee to King Jesus, to trust in you, the living God. Father, we are so thankful that you've saved us from hell, you've saved us from your wrath. Lord, you have even more brought us to a knowledge of yourself, you have given us the great joy, eternal joy of knowing you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. For this is eternal life. We thank you, Father, that we have life. We have great hope of this life to come. Lord, we know that Satan tries to steal away our As the great thief and murderer and liar that he is, he tries to steal away our hope, to steal away our encouragement and joy. And God, we pray that your spirit would establish us this day in our great assurance of all the truth that we find at the end of Romans 8, that nothing, no one, not a single thing in all of creation can separate us from your love in Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, we praise you that you are sustaining us, preserving us this day. Lord, there are ways today and in the week past that we could have fallen over into unbelief, ways that we could have fallen into apostasy, into great and awful sin. But Lord, you've kept us and we praise you. We praise you that you have been merciful to us and that you will continue the work in us that you began when you saved us, when you chose us before the foundation of the world in Christ, in love. Father, we thank you that you are keeping us and will keep us till the end and we pray, God, that our great confidence would be in that reality. Lord, help us to flee Every form of ungodliness. Help us to hate evil, to hate sin, to abhor what is evil, and to love what is true and good and right and beautiful. Lord, we pray for your forgiveness for our sins, and we ask that you would continue to convict us as the law does. But Lord, that we would run to Christ, that we would find great encouragement and joy. And comfort in the cross. 
Lord, we thank you that Jesus did what we could never do for ourselves, that he gave his life as a sacrifice for us, that he substituted himself in our place on the cross. We thank you that through him, every sin, past, present, and future, is forgiven. Through him, the power of sin is broken. Enslavement to sin has ended, and we are free in Christ. Lord, we praise you for that. We ask this morning that you would use this passage and this sermon to conform us more into the image of Christ. That we would be those who reflect Christ, who magnify him through how we walk and how we live. That people would see our lives, that our children would see our lives, our unbelieving family members and co-workers and neighbors and friends would see our lives and that they would see the glory of Christ. Would that be? And would you use this time to that end? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So as we come to the ninth commandment this morning, our attention is drawn to two things. Very simple. There's sort of two aspects to this command that we find here. And here they are. So first, justice. There's the aspect of justice very much uh, embedded in this command. And then secondly, truthfulness. So we'll look at each of those, and of course truthfulness is integrally related to justice, and that's why we understand the the narrow meaning of the command and the broad meaning or application of the command. So first, justice, and second, truthfulness. So let's look now at justice. The language of the ninth commandment is that of the law court. That's where we are. We're brought into the law court as we come to uh, these very few words in the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, or as the New American Standard says, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. The scene is a court, one of justice. There is a judge or a counsel And witnesses are brought forward against a defendant, a person who has been accused or a person who is being tried. We think of Jesus' trial and all of the injustice. And we're meant to understand uh, the crucifixion of Jesus as murder. Uh, Jesus was not justly tried. He was not tried in a way that was in conformity with the law. Those who were most fastidious supposedly about keeping the law and Uh, Tithing mint and dill and cumin were uh, so uh, disregarding of the law in trying the Savior as they unjustly convicted him of crimes he'd never committed and as they murdered him there at the cross as they brought him before the pagan Pontius Pilate. So here the scene is much like that. We have a judge or a counsel and witnesses brought forward. We read this in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, about witnesses. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. And so there very much is a concern embedded in that of justice and the recognition of a a fallen world. And that's not just that that one witness might uh, be a liar. Of course, that is certainly true. That 
one witness may not be obeying this commandment, but it's also the case that that one witness could uh, be misinformed by their perception. Their perception could be wrong or they could think that they witnessed something or saw something that they did not see or they could have misunderstood something. And so we understand, especially in a fallen world and even more in a fallen world where there are sinners, the need for multiple witnesses. Jesus brings this forward into situations of church discipline within the new covenant community. And so he brings this into Matthew 18, that well-known church discipline passage. He says there, after talking about a person going to another to, uh, to discuss the offense, the one who has offended them, he says this in verse 16, but if he does not listen, so you've gone to the person, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. A reminder here that God's law is perfect. God's law is holy, as Paul says in Romans 7. And so we see Jesus showing the, the righteousness of the law in this respect, that this is to continue in the new covenant community, that there must be multiple witnesses. So witnesses are an important part of administering justice. They play a key role. Role. This is true today, as it was then, but even more at that time when they did not have the sort of evidence-gathering technology that we have today. So we think today of things like fingerprinting and DNA testing and cameras and recorders. You could have one eyewitness, or you really don't even have to have an eyewitness if you have a camera or you have a recording of Someone's voice, I think of a murder trial recently uh, that I, I read about where uh, there was a, a one recording on a cell phone that basically sealed the deal. We have this sort of technology and yet witnesses are still important today. How much more back then when they did not have this kind of evidence gathering technology. So given the importance of witnesses, it is essential that they do not provide false testimony. It is essential that they function as truthful witnesses. False testimony would be devastating to justice. You can imagine a person brought forward. We have instances of this in scripture. A person brought forward and there are witnesses that come against them and say that they did something that they did not do. We think about how horrific it is. And I talked about the the death penalty, capital punishment recently. How awful it is when a person murders other people and does not receive uh, what the Lord calls for in Genesis 9. That, that the image of God is treated lightly, is treated as nothing, and that person is able to get off on parole or, or, or even to spend the rest of their days in prison. That is not justice when murder has taken Place. But on the flip side, we think of how awful it is when an innocent person is brought forward and there are false witnesses and false testimony and that innocent person is, is brought before the judge and loses years of his or her life or is thrown in prison for life or, or even put to death. How awful, how devastating to justice this is. And it is a direct assault against one's neighbor. You could argue it is one of the worst things you could possibly do to another person short of killing them. You think about why this is so significant. I mean, reading through these commandments, you may come to this commandment and think, I mean, that's not, is that, does that really warrant a spot? 
on the Ten Commandments? Does that really get one of the headers for God's moral law as we understand it, that, that we would have this false testimony? False testimony? Well, will you cons- when you consider that doing this is one of the worst things you can do to a person short of killing them, I think we understand why it is here. It is a direct assault against the neighbor, the one being testified against. And here we see where the other commandments come into play. To bring false testimony against someone would be to ruin or kill their name. Oh, we consider the emphasis, particularly in Proverbs, of, of, of a reputation, the importance of our name, of our reputation. And to give false testimony against a person is to slaughter their reputation. And we've talked about this with honoring God's name, the relationship between the essence of a person and the name of a person. That when you assault the, the name, you are attacking the, the essence, you're attacking the character, you're attacking the person himself so it would be to kill or ruin their name it would be to steal away their reputation or their future and we all know this you you bear false witness against a person and you destroy, you you destroy their name that doesn't go away it remains there and, and it might dissipate it might go down a little bit if the person is vindicated or if the the witness is proven false but but it puts question marks in everyone's mind and it doesn't just put question marks in everyone's mind about that particular thing or that particular vice it puts question marks in people's minds about the entire character of a person how awful to bring false testimony against another. Later in Exodus, we read this in chapter 23, verses 1 to 3, and we'll come there shortly, but here I'll just quote it. You shall not spread a false report. By the way, false reports do tend to spread. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness In a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. And this is part of the problem, I think, especially today with identity politics as we think about defining people in these very specific ways. And then then justice is not done because it, it leans in the direction of people because of how they have been identified. Here we see that not even in the case of a poor man is justice to be perverted. You're not to pervert the truth, not to pervert the facts of the case simply because you have this bent towards a particular person, even if that bent can be described as compassion. To do so is to pervert God's justice. It is to pervert what God has put into the creation. It is to pervert how he has governed human beings. So as we apply this commandment to ourselves, so now taking a step back, the first thing we have to consider is this topic of justice. The first thing we have to deal with is this notion of being a false witness. That's explicitly and most narrowly what is dealt with here in the text. But as we think about this, I mean, probably it is not the case that very many times you will serve as a witness in a a case where you will be tempted to uh, pervert the truth, although that could happen. As we apply this to ourselves, I think one of the ways we most break this commandment is through this awful thing called slander. And we've already talked about slander, 
But I also want to fold into that because that's a really bad word. You know, we, we don't tend to use that of our sin. We give our sins the best labels, right? We give them the nicest label. We want to sort of, you know, we're okay to say we're sinners, of course. And we're okay to say that we've done wrong, but we still give it the best possible hearing that we can and the neatest label that we can. So we don't really say that we slander, but, you know, gossip is something that we might be willing to admit to. I want you to understand the close relationship between slander and gossip. It is probably the case that no one in this room has ever gossiped without slandering. Why is that the case? Because we don't simply convey the facts. We don't simply just go to someone where we're gossiping, we're just running our mouths, running our mouths about other people. We don't simply convey information. We convey moral judgments. And inevitably it is the case that we are cutting people down falsely. There's a whole host of other sins associated with gossip. But one of those, I think, inevitably is the sin of slander. In Psalm 15, verses 2 to 3, the person who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Do we not want to be described in that way? In the halls of heaven? That should be our desire. That in the halls of heaven, and even among the people that we we live around and move around, that we would be described as one who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Isn't that the way that we want our, ki- what, what we want our kids to grow up to be and the way that we would desire that our kids would even describe us or our grandkids would describe us? Well, this description is identified, or this person is identified as one who does not, in the very next verse, verse 3, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. When we slander, we do evil to our neighbor. Proverbs 16, verse 28, a dishonest man spreads strife, And a whisperer separates close friends. How awful. Let me just ask you that question. How many close friends have you separated through your slander? How many close friends, how many relationships have you ruptured, have you sliced into? Or are you slicing into this very day as you've come here uh, by God's providence and, and you're hearing this text preached by God's grace? How many people at this very moment, at this period in your life, are you slicing apart through slander? How much division exists in churches because of slander? Because of not obeying the ninth commandment. If you've been in church for a good portion of your life, you've seen all kinds of junk in church. And, of course, we, we use these sorts of things. Well, you know, there's sinners in church too. Yes, but we are the people of God. We are the people who bear Christ's name. We are to be those who are looking more and more. Every day we wake up just looking more and more like King Jesus. We're not to simply make peace with 
being like the world or make peace with, yes, we're sinners just like the rest of the world. We're not sinners like the rest of the world. We're redeemed sinners. We're sinners who are now saints. We're sinners who have the Holy Spirit in us, who are empowered by God for all that is needed for life and godliness. How can it be that we can just slander and gossip like everyone else? This is not the way of Christ's people. And it tears apart relationships and it tears apart churches And for all of that, we will have to give an account to King Jesus one day. We'll have to stand before him. You know, I remember years ago, there were some older men I knew, and this is not a charge against older men, but those are the examples that come to mind. Some older men I knew who had literally gone through in the last couple of decades three or four different churches and had participated in basically destroying each of those churches, or, or tearing up those churches. Uh, people, such people need to be reminded that they're going to stand before King Christ, stand before the King of all the earth, the judge of all the earth, and give an account. Christ has paid for their sins, and they will be received into glory, but they will have to give an account to King Jesus. And each of us will have to give an account as well. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 19, whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets. Therefore, do not associate with a simple babbler. That's the way the Bible describes a slanderous person. That's the way the Bible describes a person who gossips is a simple babbler. May it not be that we have simple babblers among us here. At Four Corners Church. May it not be that there is simple babbling going on in small groups or in the friendships within the church or in elders' meetings or, or in meetings for other leaders within the church. May we not be simple babblers. Our objective should be to lift up the name and reputation of other people. Our objective should not simply be to avoid cutting down other people or being a false witness or a slanderer against our neighbor. Our objective should be that we lift up and build up the name and the reputation that with love we cover a multitude of sins, that in forgiveness and bearing offenses we lift up the name of other people. How glorious, what a harmony unto Christ would it be That in our interactions as a church, that when we hear others talk of others, we see this sort of building up work. How much that glorifies our Savior. How much that glorifies the Lord Jesus. Not to tear down, but to build up. So let me just ask this question. How do we speak about others to those closest to us. This is one of the ways that we can really penetrate deep into this idea of slandering. And not simply going, well, you know, I didn't say anything. I, I, I wasn't tearing down a person in this group gathering or with these people. But to my closest friend, within the church we have friendships, right? We're all friends in Christ. But it's, it's of course, true that within the, the church there are people who are closer with one another than they are with others. Some of your best friends, if I were to go around, you might say, my best friend is so-and-so within the church and so-and-so within the church. So let me ask you this question. 
how do you speak about others to those closest to you within the church or even outside of the church? Do we think that we somehow get a free pass to slander others simply because the one we're talking to is our close friend? Well, I have a few freebies. I have two or three freebies that I can slander and gossip to, but no more. Where in God's word do we find that? Where do we find that license to do it, but to do it discreetly? It's simply not there. And of course, as we think about slander, remember James, James's words about the tongue in James chapter 3, verses 5 to 9. This is what he says. Listen to this. This is really incredible language. This is some of the most vivid language, I think, in, in the Bible. So also the tongue is a small member. Can't even touch your nose with it. It's, it's so small. Some of, some of you can. It is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire. A world of unrighteousness. A little universe of unrighteousness. Think about that. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed. And has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. I, I, don't, I don't know how you could say it any more vividly, any more richly. He goes on to say, with it we bless our Lord and Father. And with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. We pray our sweet prayers. We pray our beautiful prayers, and people pat us on the back. That was a nice prayer. That was so biblical, so rich, so sweet, so heartfelt. And then with that same tongue, that same instrument of poison, that same sharp sword, we curse and slander and rip apart people made in God's image. How is that godly? How is that of the Lord? It is not. It is of Satan. So that is the narrow meaning of the ninth commandment. That's narrowly how we are to understand what is going on here in the ninth commandment. Don't be a false witness against your neighbor with the result that you pervert justice. And tightly connected to this as we think about our interpersonal relationships, don't slander your neighbor. But what we find as we think about God's law is that it, it extends out, as we've talked about, it doesn't just deal with this very specific situation of court justice or this very specific situation of slanderous speech against a neighbor and their reputation, but it extends more broadly. So Leviticus 19.11 says, you shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another. And what we find there as we think about the, these commands being joined together is that there's something deeper here, there's something broader here, and it has to do with truthfulness. So now we come to truthfulness. So we've looked at justice, and we've understood that with respect to slander, but now we come to truthfulness. 
The ninth commandment is fundamentally about truth. It is a call for God's people to be truthful, to speak the truth, not lies. God, we are told throughout Scripture, is a God of truth. God is truth. Titus 1-2 says that God never lies. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18, it is impossible for God to lie. Psalm 111, verse 7, all his precepts are trustworthy. God himself in his essence is true, and God's word as he delivers it, as he gives it to us, and as it is written is true. And this is one of the theological underpinnings of the doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture. Uh, we can go through and we can look at the scriptures and we can see all the evidences within scripture and then we can go outside of scripture and see all the supporting evidences for the inerrancy and inspiration of scripture. But most fundamentally, most theologically, the reason that we as Christians believe in the inerrancy of scripture is because of the inerrancy of God. God is inerrant. His word is inerrant because he is inerrant. God never lies. He doesn't deceive us or lead us astray in his word. He doesn't tell us one thing when another thing is true. He speaks the truth. And as human beings, we bear his image. And as his people, more specifically, we bear his name. So there's two layers here. There's the creation layer and the redemption layer. In terms of creation, we bear his image. In terms of redemption, we bear his very name. Remember what he says at the beginning of the commandments. I am the Lord your God. He is our God and we bear his name. We are truthful because God is truthful. And as we think about Christ, the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity, the word becoming flesh, we see that Christ himself in fleshed deity was entirely truthful. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. He, he himself, once again, is truth, but in terms of his conduct, in terms of his character, we find that he never lied. First Peter chapter 2, verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And what that tells us is the more and more that we are being conformed to the image of Christ, the more and more it will be the case that no deceit will be found in our mouths. Now we know that the opposite of this, of course, is Satan. So what do we read about Satan? God never lies. He is truth. And Christ is truth incarnate, who perfectly as man was truthful. The opposite, of course, is that fallen angel, Satan, Lucifer, the devil. John chapter 8, verse 44 says this, or Jesus says this about Satan, you are, he's, he's talking to the religious leaders, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires, the greatest condemnation given there. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, listen to this, when Satan lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Just as when God speaks, he speaks out of his own character, and he himself is truth, and so his word is truth. Satan is one big, nasty, rotten ball of lies. 
When he speaks, he speaks out of that perverse, disgusting, wretched, wicked essence. He is a lie and he speaks lies such that he is the father of all lying. When we lie in that moment, we we act like sons of the devil. We act like sons of Satan when we lie because Satan himself is the father of lies. And as we think about this connection of him being a murderer and a liar, we go back to the fall. At the fall, he lied and at the fall, he murdered as he brought death to the human race. So as God's people, we are to be those who respect, uphold, and seek the truth in all things. We are sons of God, not sons of Satan. Uh, There was a time when we could be considered sons of Satan. We were sons of disobedience, as Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3 says. We were following the course of this world, just going along with it. Following the prince of the power of the air. We were children of wrath as we were carrying out our deeds as sons and daughters of Satan. But we're not that anymore. We are sons and daughters of the living God, the God of truth. And we are to be those who respect, uphold, and seek the truth in all things, in every area of life. Now we recognize that there are some complexities when it comes to truth. And some ethical questions that ethicists and and scholars and theologians throughout the centuries have debated and tried to walk through. We have the great example of Rahab, the harlot in Joshua chapter 2, who often gets cited when discussing the ethics of lying or not lying. She lies to the authorities to protect the spies whom Joshua has sent. So we recognize that, we'll talk about that one in a moment, we recognize that situation. We also have the nuances regarding wartime deception. We know that uh, there is war, and we recognize war throughout the Bible, and we even see acts of deception in military campaigns in the Old Testament. So nuances regarding wartime deception, undercover police work, or espionage. Uh, counterintelligence and all of that. So we recognize that there's a lot of of issues. We're not going to cover all of that in a sermon, uh, nor could we, but there there are lots of, of nuances and ethical questions surrounding truthfulness in these particular instances. But as we go back to the story of Rahab, she she lies to the authorities who come to her door and and through lying the spies there are protected. Many have pointed out that it is her faith in Israel's God and the receiving of the spies that is praised, not the lying itself. And so when you come to the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 11 verse 31 says this, By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. So her overall act, the overall context, her heart, her motivation, her faith toward God away from the paganism of her people and the vileness of her people is commended as a package. But nothing is said here commending the lie itself. James chapter 2 verse 25, and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. So I would agree with many classic treatments of the question of lying. This is actually a big discussion, so I'm just kind of scratching the surface on it, but I would agree 
with the many classic treatments of the question of lying, treatments by uh, Augustine and Calvin and John Murray, that lying is never the answer. And I will be honest in saying my view has changed on this over the years. Uh, This is a difficult question. And if you want to look at two faithful, Bible-believing, God-honoring theologians, ethicists deal with this, uh, I would encourage you to go read John Frame. He has um, uh, The Doctrine of the Christian Life, which is his ethics. He walks through the Ten Commandments. He deals with this question. And then Wayne Grudem has a, a pretty large ethics as well. And Wayne Grudem was actually John Frame's student, but they disagree on this question. John Frame understands lying under particular instances, I would say to protect the, the life of the innocent, would be justifiable and Grudem argues that lying is never the answer. So my own personal view has shifted from the view of John Frame to the view of Grudem and to the view that has largely been held throughout the history of the Christian tradition through Augustine, Calvin, and others, that lying is never the answer. And I think as we think about these unique situations, and often it's the case when ethicists deal with this, they, they put up these hypothetical unique situations uh, that really are divorced from context. But I think we're meant to understand that in any given situation, who's in control? Who has ordained every aspect of that situation? The one thing that, that helped me move uh, to the different position that I have now is the notion of God's providence. That there's never a situation we enter into, no matter how thorny, no matter how charged with ethical dilemmas and difficulties, there's never a situation that we enter into where God is not sovereign and supreme over it, where God is not providentially ordaining it. If not one bird in a distant jungle falls to the ground apart from the will of God, certainly it is the case that we do not meet an ethical situation apart from God's ordaining providence. And in such moments, we rely on the Spirit to speak wisely. We may be silent or we may find ways to evade, but lying is not the way of the people of God. And I also found convincing Wayne Grudem's discussion that uh, once you begin to justify lying under these extreme hypothetical situations, what happens is, uh, by reference, and slippery slope arguments are a little dangerous, but, but I think this is the case, that once you begin to justify it in these very unique situations uh, where you're protecting life, then you begin to justify it more broadly and more broadly and more broadly. And then you've got your own sort of situational ethics in which, according to this ethical system, you can lie here and lie there but not there. I find that argumentation convincing. I also find convincing Augustine's logic when he says that we would not disobey any of the other commandments in such a situation in order to justify the end. Why this one? And I think that is true. So for those reasons, that is how I have now come to understand that question. We must trust God's providence. Trust his spirit in the moment, the most difficult moments, to help us speak in truth, but in ways that protect others and help others. We find that lying is all over the place in our culture. We don't have to look far and wide to find all forms of lying. And I'm sure that you have probably faced the temptation to do it in your work. And this will probably just become more and more the case. Maybe a boss who wants you to lie about a product or a service. 
To tell the customer one thing when the truth is something altogether different. Uh, you're simply told to do this or you may lose your job or if you don't do this, you won't get a promotion or if you do this, you'll lose this sale. And so here comes Satan. He comes along, the father of lies, and he gives you all the reasons in the world to justify the lie. Well, I mean, is it really a lie? And we just twist it and we smooth it over and we change it. We put a new label on it. We presume on God's grace before we do it. And then we lie. That is not the way of the Lord. The way of the Lord is to lose our job and trust that he'll give us another one. The way of the Lord is to lose the $10,000 and know he's going to provide. The way of the Lord is to forfeit and forfeit and lose because we trust in the Lord. We trust in the God who provides all of our needs in Christ Jesus, who works all things together for good. We trust in the God who will never leave us or forsake us. Uh, that's, that passage, by the way, is in, the, is in a part of Hebrews. That right before that, it says, uh, do not be a lover of money. And then, and then it goes on to say, God won't leave us or forsake us. We don't need these things. We need to obey the Lord. That's what we need. There are all the ways that we are tempted to lie to promote self just in our interactions with people, in our private interactions, even in the spur of the moment situations when we can tell a small untruth in order to look better to our peers. It's just a little untruth here. It, it makes me look a little better. And I think we're even hardwired to do this in ways that are even spontaneous. And that's another thing about character. You know, when we are lying, it, it's important that we understand that, that's, that that indicates our character. Our character grows. Our maturity in Christ grows such that in those spontaneous moments, our hearts and our lips, our tongues do not go to non-truth. They go to truth. It's when we find ourselves in those spontaneous moments, going to those little white lies all over the place, that's when we understand the great character deficiency within us. That's when we understand the truth of our discipleship. That's when we understand ways in which we have not grown in the Lord. In that sense, lying is a great thermometer. It is a great indicator of spiritual health. It helps us understand the ways in which we have neglected the spiritual disciplines, ways we have neglected to grow in God's grace. An exaggeration, sometimes that will help us to be seen in a better light, we justify and we move on from, but it only creates more and more of a habit of lying. This is the air we breathe in this world. And if we were to go out and just, and all of our, we would see the mass, there's, I was reading this week, different surveys of, of lying and so forth. It is incredible, some of the data on how often people lie. And if we're honest with ourselves, we look back, if we're honest with ourselves, we look back over the last week, we, we could think of situations in which we told non-truths, aka lies. Once again, we like to put a better label we need to understand the seriousness of lying when we come to a passage like Revelation 21, verse 8. Listen to how this is described as we are tempted to treat our lying as, no, as nothing. Revelation 21, verse 8, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, 
As for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Do do you hear that? That lying is deserving of hell. And lying is, uh, the result of lying ultimately is hell. And so as we gather here this morning, as we think about the fact that Christ has, has saved us. I heard, listen to a little video this morning where John Piper was uh, talking about Tim Keller. And he had this little brief message where he said that uh, in an exchange that he had with, with Keller before he died, just the idea that uh, Keller took great delight in knowing that his name was written uh, in heaven. And, you know, that's what we take delight in because if it were not for Christ, we would all go to hell. We would all go to the lake of fire because we fit all of these words. We are all liars historically, but in Christ our sins have been forgiven and the Spirit has written the truthfulness law onto our hearts and more and more we are shedding that old self as we have already died to that old self. I want to close this morning with two passages from the New Testament that call the people of God, two epistles, from, two, two passages from Paul's epistles, that call the people of God to truthfulness. And I'll just leave those hanging with us. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 to 10, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. That's who we were before. That's the old me. That's the old you. We are to put that off, the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So we praise God this morning that God in his grace has saved us, that Christ In his mercy and grace toward us, gave his life for the sheep. He died in our place for all of our lying. And just imagine, just the lying represented in this room. What if you could ball it up and just drop it on Christ? And Christ died for not just the lying of this room. He died for the lying of all of his people across space and time. And not just for the lying of his people, but for all the sins. Christ took that at the cross so that we could be free. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we are now in the Spirit to carry out the righteous requirement of the law as it is being fulfilled in us by the Spirit, for the glory of God, by the grace of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this particular commandment. God, would it find its way into the recesses of our hearts? Would it stomp out the fires that James talks about with the tongue? Lord, would you apply it like a surgeon to each of us? Lord, would we be those who are truthful, those who do not lie? Would we be those who are not slanderous in our speech, those who uphold and lift up the reputation of other people? Lord, would we be those who see 
the plank in our own eye before we see the speck in the eye of our brother? Lord, would we be those who desire the good of everyone we meet for your glory in Jesus' name.